Welcome to the Litigation Psychology Podcast, presented by Courtroom Sciences, a podcast for the defense bar about the intersection of science and litigation. Thanks for joining us. My name is Steve Wood, and we're back for another podcast brought to you by Courtroom Sciences, Inc. And today with me, I have Dr. Lori Sikafuse. We originally had a thought about doing a podcast on damage awards and these nuclear verdicts, but I think between the two of us, we talked and we thought with this time of COVID-19 that it would be more appropriate to dig in a little bit and talk about how COVID-19 affects juror decision-making. I just want to start off, actually, the big question is, is COVID-19 crisis, is it going to have a long-term impact on juror decision-making? And if so, what do we think those impacts are going to be? Well, I'm certain that the COVID-19 crisis is going to impact juror decision-making. I'm not sure how long the impacts will persist. It, there's so much uncertain right now. It all depends on the trajectory of this crisis and how things continue to unfold. We don't know when civil jury trials will resume and what the COVID-19 situation will look like at that time and what kind of adjustments the courts will be making in terms of social distancing and things like that. But we don't currently have a lot of data about how this particular crisis has impacted prospective jurors' attitudes and decisions, but we do have a lot of prior psychological research and data that we can draw on and determining what the likely effects will be. And I think that's one of the things I've actually seen, and you probably saw the same article as well, is that there's discussion now about potentially doing real trials online where you're actually having a platform like a Zoom or a WebEx where jurors are logging in and then they're actually sitting through trials without actually being in the courtroom, which I think from a psychological perspective, and we can talk a little bit about this later, it's just a strange dynamic and a strange way for individuals to interact with one another that I'd be interested to see how that's going to influence the outcomes versus sitting in an actual courtroom. And one of the things actually I wanted to talk to you about is, you know, they, they briefly mentioned in that article about changes in people's behavior. Have you observed really any changes in people's behavior as a result of COVID-19? That's a great question. I think that you and I are both really kind of attuned to this because of our backgrounds. But yes, absolutely, I have. And what I'm seeing is more extreme polarization, really, drawn across political lines and ideologies. And we can always learn from crises like 9-11, but it's the, the behavior, the response is not the same. You know, in the aftermath of 9-11, it's really everyone came together. Most people were on the same page trying to protect themselves or fight against this common enemy. And here we're not seeing that. We're seeing a fracture across political lines right away where we didn't see that in response to 9-11 for some time. And that could partially be due to just, you know, social media and and the internet that we have nowadays. But the response is not the same. There's more polarization. Now, yes, of course, you'll see people, you know, posting, we're all in this together, and and, and people are being nice to their neighbors and things like that, but there's just not the same sense of camaraderie. Uh, So really, more polarization. You don't see people trying to meet in the middle. I think they're more divided than ever. Yeah, and I've noticed that too. Like you said, the the we're all in this together. But if you go out in public, it doesn't really seem like that. It's almost like everybody is suspect of everyone else, and we're all fighting for scarce resources. I mean, I can think back to the jokes initially about the issues over toilet paper, and now that some of that stuff is coming back and people aren't rushing to it, I think the new issue now that we've seen is the use of masks. And I actually read an article the other day that was critical of individuals that were using masks and talking about how the use of masks has, per this article, has made people dumber and more suspicious of other individuals and actually more hostile towards other individuals. And I think 
it's been interesting because I don't know what it's like there in, in Las Vegas, but here in Texas, it's about 50-50 on people wearing masks in the stores. And then you have the people who are wearing masks looking sideways at the people who are, and then the people who aren't wearing masks looking at the people who are as if, you know, they're they're foolish for wearing a mask. So I, I think it's been a strange time. And you can't even really cough nowadays either without being in a supermarket and cough and have someone look at you like maybe you're sick. So it's just really a time of I've seen as of suspicion and anger and hostility towards one another. Right. I think that you're absolutely right. And it's interesting, but it, it does cohere with the psychological research that's out there. And we can talk more about that in a second. But, you know, people are generally drawing closer to their family and friends, you know, even if they're apart, I think a lot of people are making more efforts to reach out, to do video chats, to just check on people and see that they're okay. I know that that certainly occurred in my life, you know, where I'm talking to family members and friends a lot more. So I feel closer to my inner circle, but outsiders, you know, the outsiders, the strangers at the grocery store, people that aren't in your circle, I think that people are as you said, really becoming more judgmental of others, impatient with others, um, combative with others sometimes. And Laura, you'd mentioned a little bit about psychology and the social uh, psychological research. So let's talk about some of that. I know you have a background in terror management theory. So why don't you talk to our listeners a little bit about that theory and how that really plays into COVID-19? So terror management theory is a really well-researched and well-supported social psychological theory. Here's what it's about. So humans are the only living beings that understand that one day that they'll die. And we're the only organisms that are aware of our own mortality. So terror management theory proposes that we're all kind of subconsciously managing the anxiety that comes with that realization. When people are reminded of their death and their own mortality, say through the COVID-19 crisis, they're going to do certain things to minimize that anxiety. Specifically, they're really going to cling tightly to their pre-existing ideologies, the attitudes and beliefs that are important to them. For example, if a person's religious, their religion is going to become even more important. If a person's politically conservative, they're going to become even more so and more rigid in those beliefs. Same thing with a political liberal. And clinging to these worldviews and ideologies, what what it does is it helps people feel calmer and more meaningful when confronted with what psychologists term mortality salience, basically the conscious awareness of death and, and your own mortality. People become more rigid in terms of their beliefs and affiliations. And they don't consider alternative perspectives or much less likely to entertain them, at least, or listen to others who are different from them and have different ideas than them. So um, with jurors, you know, if the courts open back up, but there's still this threat of COVID-19 and social distancing and that kind of related anxiety, jurors are likely going to become more polarized and more extreme. So, you know, your anti-corporate jurors are going to become more anti-corporate and your free market jurors will be more extreme in their beliefs, too. And they're going to be less likely to consider jurors' perspectives that differ from their own. Now, if you think this sounds nuts, I I will tell you, and and you you know this as well. You know, I spent a ton of time in my graduate career researching and writing about this theory. It actually holds up really well, and it has been successfully applied to juror decision-making context. So trial attorneys should be aware of it, I think. That sounds a little extreme, though, doesn't it? I mean, depending on the state of affairs when the courts reopen, I mean, all jurors aren't really going to be in this death-anxiety state of mind, though, are they? No, uh, maybe not, but it's something to keep in mind. And we can actually spend a whole other podcast talking about the implication of terror management theory on jurors' decisions in a variety of contexts. But this is really the tip of the iceberg. And so you look at research, psychological research about how people typically respond to fear, how do they typically respond to stress and uncertainty, 
You know what they do? They cling to their pre-existing beliefs and sometimes more strongly, they become more rigid in their thinking. They rely on what they always believed or they knew. They're not in a position to consider, interpret, and incorporate new information and perspectives into their decision-making. And that's especially true if this information and ideas are different from their own. And, and I mean, you see it when we see people that are under a lot of stress or, or fearful, you don't see them calmly and logically considering all options available to them, right? It's a fight or flight mode. They're running away from the issue or they're doing the same thing frantically over and over, which is not working. Right. And like you said, it, it's going to affect jurors' ability to focus on the case facts. And as we know, when we look to pick jurors who are one of the most volatile type of jurors, one of those jurors we don't want to have, it's the emotional ones, right? It's the ones who are going to be thinking with their gut and not their head, thinking with their emotions, wearing their emotions on their sleeves. So sometimes those people are a little bit easier to pick out during voir dire and make sure you get them off. But like I said, I think even those individuals who might not have been as emotional before, you might see them turning a little bit more emotional now. Yeah, especially if you're a defense attorney and an emotional juror is not good for you. But I think that, that you're absolutely right. And, you know, we have, we're getting a lot of questions from clients about jurors' potential reactions to the COVID-19 crisis. And one of the questions we got yesterday um, was something like, you know, is experiencing this whole crisis going to cause jurors to think more scientifically and pay more attention to scientific evidence since really, you know, people are using science right now, now to slow the spread of the virus and things like that. And I would say generally, no, no, it's not. I think that the more analytical types for sure might be more focused on science and, and more likely to analyze that at trial. But really, like you said, what we're primarily going to see uh, is jurors shifting to what we call uh, the mode of experiential processing or emotional processing. Just like you said, more reliant on their intuition and gut feelings when making case decisions. I also think that jurors are going to be motivated to reach a conclusion about cases more quickly, at least at the individual level, because this helps control their feelings of uncertainty, even if the feelings of uncertainty aren't related to the case. Jurors really do this unconsciously or subconsciously. So it's not like they're going to say to themselves at the beginning of trial, well, you know what, I'm under a lot of stress and, and things are kind of uncertain right now. So you know what I need to do is not let this affect me uh, and not make any hasty decisions in this case to make me feel better psychologically. They're, they just don't have that level of awareness. Yeah, that's a good point. And I, I wanted to switch gears a little bit on you and get your thoughts on some things I've recently seen in the media about reports regarding heightened suspicion of Asian Americans or persons of Asian descent in the United States. And that arises, obviously, based upon these assertions that COVID-19 originated in China. And sometimes, unfortunately, people's fears and irrational beliefs about pandemics and COVID-19 in particular will lead to outright discrimination and mistreatment you know, of individuals of Asian descent. You think we're going to see any of that translate over into jury trials at all? I think so. Absolutely. I think, you know, you're going to be especially concerned about this, of course, when you're representing a company based in Asia or you've got a witness of Asian descent. But the bias that we're seeing is actually going to transcend beyond reactions to Asia. And the research suggests that the experience of living through the COVID-19 crisis is going to bias jurors, not necessarily all of them, but definitely has the potential to 
against all types of outgroups. And so it could cause them to be biased against a European corporation or, you know, all different kinds of foreign witnesses, even if it's not directly related to COVID-19. You know, with terror management theory, or what we see in that literature is that mortality salience causes individuals to express more negative attitudes and beliefs about others who don't show their ethnic backgrounds, religious beliefs, and other types of beliefs, even, you know, a fan of a opposing sports team, that kind of thing. And again, you know, the intense feelings of stress and uncertainty that people are experiencing are also causing them to cling to their in-group and increasingly identify with people like them while rejecting out group members. You know, I think that's incredibly interesting. And I think that's why you and I wanted to do this podcast because our social psychological training has led us to see it from a different perspective. And we get an understanding of why this reaction is happening versus the idea that we're all going to come together and we're all in this together, why that hasn't really resonated with individuals. Are there studies out there to show how pandemics can affect people's attitudes and beliefs? Yeah, there actually are studies out there, and I know it, it's been a while in the U.S. There are, there are several studies examining the effects of, of pandemics or, or kind of localized illnesses in European countries and things like that. And so we see that, yeah, in terms of core ideologies, studies do demonstrate that pandemics can change people's attitudes and beliefs. And you know what? It's consistent with, with everything that we've been talking about so far. These studies show that historically experiencing a pandemic leads to suspicion and sometimes outright derogation of outgroups, okay? And it doesn't have to be a specific outgroup um, in terms of, you know, oh, that particular outgroup is responsible for the pandemic. No, it's all kinds of different outgroups. And, you know, we already talked a little bit about why this is. But in terms of a pandemic and experiencing that, it's hypothesized that the fear of contagion drives people to fear outsiders, you know, because at, they're just perceived to be more likely to be carriers of the disease and you want to kind of stick with your, with your inner circle. And so, you know, all of this can explain somewhat, at least, our increased encounters with some rude and suspicious people at the grocery store and the increased distrust of strangers during this time. Another finding that is fairly consistent is that during and in the aftermath of the pandemic or, or among people who fear contagion for some reason, they tend to become more conservatives in their beliefs. And I'm not talking with regards to policy per se, uh, but these individuals are more likely to follow rules, they're more rigid, and they're more likely to uh, respect authority figures. And that's really based on the premise that, you know, if you follow protocol, if you follow the rules, if you do what you're supposed to do, that's going to minimize your likelihood of becoming ill. So if you look at it that way, then this increase in following rules and becoming more rigid, respecting authority and all of that, I would think that would play better for defense attorneys or the defense in the cases in which the plaintiff might actually have been injured because they didn't follow the rules. What are your thoughts on this? Yeah, and you know, I think it depends on the case. I think it could benefit plaintiffs in some cases. I think it could benefit the defense in other cases. You know, even, and we're talking about rules, right? We're not talking about them becoming more politically conservative. And you know, conservatives and liberals <clears throat> may follow different rules. Let's think about this. So let's say this whole experience causes people to become more extreme rule followers. Well, that's an effect that sounds really helpful for plaintiff reptile attorneys, right? Yeah, and actually that was one of the things too that was floating through my head it was we know that reptile attorneys tend to focus on safety rules and all the rules that you should follow. 
And if you deviate from these rules, then you increase the chances of risk, and that risk could then potentially harm the client. So I could definitely see, though, how it would work both ways. Yeah, I, and, and the aftermath of, you know, whenever we re, uh, these jurors return to court, I defense attorneys are going to have to be really cognizant of that. I think jurors are going to be especially susceptible to reptile plaintiff approaches, and so defense really needs to take extra measures to combat that and undermine it. And as you think about what we've talked about before, I mean, based upon what you just said about the rule following and then double that with what we've talked about, about highly emotional jurors. So now you have a highly emotional juror who's looking for a rule following. And now if you have a corporation that puts profits over safety and looks like they broke the safety rule, I mean, you're in for trouble as far as from a defense perspective. But one of the things I wanted to talk about, too, we've been talking about these general worldviews. But I wanted to touch a little bit more about case-specific attitudes. I mean, for example... There's been speculation about how jurors are going to feel about essential workers who've put their life on the line to serve the public. The discussions that I've heard have been surrounded primarily around trucking companies and medical personnel. Uh, do you have any thoughts about kind of what's going to happen going forward as far as people's perceptions of these essential workers from pre-COVID to post-COVID? Yeah, and we know with the most recent data that most Americans are highly supportive of all the healthcare professionals out there in the front lines. Uh, their respect for them has increased uh, for some individuals dramatically so. And I'm sure that most Americans are also really supportive of transportation professionals and other others who are exposing themselves to serve the public. And, and I think that, yes, it, that this will affect jurors' attitudes so that, they, you know, it could improve your chances. If, if you do have, you know, a truck driver who's a defendant or you do have a nurse or a doctor who's a defendant or another healthcare professional, but it's really going to depend on the case and a lot of other factors. You know, I mean, if the case isn't related to COVID-19, it could be great for you. Now, you know, if you have a nurse suing the health, her employer, right? Or you have a truck driver that's suing his or her employer, it could be really bad for the defense. And, and I wanted to ask you too about attitudes towards companies, more specifically attitudes towards corporate defendants. I know we've been getting a lot of interest in kind of how COVID-19 is impacting the way people look at corporate defendants. So what are, you, what are your thoughts on that? A specific corporations' responses during this time, I think, can certainly affect jurors' attitudes toward them and subsequent decisions in litigation. We don't have any evidence so far that this crisis has had a significant impact on people's attitudes towards corporations in general. We do know that people are expecting corporations to do the right thing right now and that people are divided as to whether they actually trust the corporations to do the right things. And I'll cite some survey data from a marketing research firm. It's called Morning Consult to illustrate this. And this firm has a ton of publicly available data about public and consumer reactions to COVID-19, and they update it weekly. Their methodology is really solid if you want to check out their website. So survey data that was published last week indicate that 68% of individuals think that CEOs are somewhat or very responsible for helping people through this crisis, but most didn't think that CEOs have been very helpful so far. So here's another survey question. How much do you trust each of the following to lead us through uh, the coronavirus pandemic? 65% say they trust the local government to do it. 62% say they trust small businesses to lead us through this crisis. And only 50% say they trust large companies or corporations to lead us through. 46% trust President Trump and less than half, it's 41%, trust the CEOs of large companies to do the same to lead us through this crisis. And these data don't really represent a big departure 
from the faith that the public had in corporations before the COVID-19 crisis. So we're going to have to see it, that how this plays out. But if I had to make a prediction right now, I think that the jurors who were strongly anti-corporate are still going to feel that way after COVID-19. And the jurors who were strongly, strongly pro-corporate before are still going to feel that way too. And they'll probably actually become more polarized for the reasons that we discussed. Anecdotally, like in my life, I've seen a lot of anti-corporate individuals seize on this opportunity to post about all of the unsafe, unfair working conditions and strikes and punishments for trying to unionize and that kind of thing. I've noticed fewer, you know, social media activity and, and news stories and that kind of thing about the positive things that corporations are doing. There have been some big stories like the Shake Shack returning its bailout money. And we're also seeing stories about companies paying full salary and benefits to employees who can't be working right now. But I think that the positive stories are likely only affecting people's attitudes towards those specific companies, and it's not translating to corporations in general. All right, so yeah, we talk a lot about, you've talked a lot about there about companies and the perceptions that people had about the actions of corporations during this time. What would you recommend then that corporations should be doing? So what the current data say is that these long rambling emails about how the corporation cares about us and how they're working to protect our health and safety. Oh wait, isn't that guarantee our health and safety, right? Ensure our health and safety. The public doesn't care about that. And jurors aren't gonna care about that either. And as you know, that's really going to hurt you if you get sued and then a plaintiff's reptile attorney shows that you couldn't ensure 100% safety, right? I think it's interesting that you say that, though, and that's why one of the things that we do at Courtroom Sciences is we have our critical communication services that we do. And, and one of the areas that we help is corporations make sure that they're framing their message properly so it doesn't come back at a later point, you know, during litigation and cause problems for them. And one of the things I've actually seen recently was an airline company on their website. They talked about how passenger safety is our top priority. If a passenger gets sick or contracts COVID while it's on a flight, you know, a savvy plaintiff attorney is going to point to this and use it in building their safety rules in the reptile script. For example, if the airlines say, you know, safety is our top priority and it failed anywhere along the way to put customer or employee safety as a top priority, it's going to cause a big problem for them as far as in the minds of jurors who are already susceptible to reptile attacks and even more so now after COVID-19. Yeah. And so many of these corporate messages to consumers and the public, they're all the same. They're not effective. The other day, I got a really long email letter from a CEO of what may or may not have been an airline. And it went on and on and on for pages. They're ensuring my safety. They're ensuring their employees' safety and the public safety. And they care so much about my well-being. And then it ended with a sales pitch. And well, first of all, I was likely among the 0.5% the that actually read that entire email. But I thought it was just really disingenuous and fantastic material, honestly, for a plaintiff reptile. You know, attorney, oh, you know, like you said, you're ensuring passenger health and safety, people got sick. You know, you're ensuring employees' safety and well-being, but people got sick and their well-being was compromised in a ton of other ways. And then, then you have the audacity to follow this heartfelt message up with a sales pitch. Oh, that's a classic example of a company putting profits over safety. Like I said, we, we just, you, you mentioned on it briefly a little bit what they shouldn't be doing. So I want to circle back though and get your thoughts on what you think a company should be doing then. Sorry, I got a little off track. That's all right. Okay. So some of the top things that the public and consumers want to see companies doing, they want to see companies making donations to food banks and other organizations to help people that are struggling right now. 
They want to see promises to rehire employees who have been laid off or furloughed because of this COVID-19 crisis, and they want to see corporate executives taking pay cuts. There's also been a, a ton of appreciation for companies that are giving consumers a break during this time, especially the lenders and financial institutions. They're letting borrowers defer payments and making it easier for them to do it, making that interest free. A really good move that several insurance companies made was to apply like an automatic 25% discount or something like that, or refund on auto insurance premiums. And responses like that demonstrate that these companies care about more than just profits. And I think that that will have an impact on some of the jurors who might serve on what we expect actually is going to be the tidal wave, really, of COVID-19 related litigation. You talked about companies and what they should be doing. So what are... What's one of the number one things that attorneys should be doing right now in response to this? There's a lot attorneys can be doing. In-house counsel in particular can be working with their partners on messaging and their organizational responses to the COVID-19 crisis. I think that the number one thing attorneys can be doing should be doing litigation psychology-wise and in terms of managing jurors' perceptions in the near future is to really focus on witnesses. There are a few reasons for that. First, you know, now more than ever, you're going to need really effective corporate reps. Even if a litigation isn't COVID-19 related, you got to have a likable, relatable, professional corporate rep right now. And as we talked about earlier, there are a lot of things that companies can do to improve public perceptions during this time. But you and I both know jurors tend to focus on the negatives, right? Uh, they look to identify the entity that's like the moral villain or engaged in the worst conduct, and then they side with the opposing side. So you got to present the corporate defendant in the best light possible and jurors trust witnesses more than corporate statements or attorney arguments. Another reason jurors are most likely to trust the regular employee, like a nurse, a truck driver, construction workers, to provide an honest and accurate picture of what really working for a defendant corporation is like. And so it's especially important, I think, that attorneys realize the importance of preparing these witnesses, too. And this is true, again, even if the matter isn't directly related to the COVID-19 crisis. And because, you know, keep in mind, jurors can and they do differentiate between corporate defendants and employees who may also be named as defendants. So if you've got a co-defendant or key witness who's no longer employed with you or who otherwise has grievances, it's going to take several witness effectiveness trainings to fix this. It can be done, but it's, it's going to take a few sessions. Yeah, so you, you've talked a lot about the impacts that COVID-19 has had on on jurors and other individuals and stuff. But I think one of the things we're forgetting is that witnesses will be impacted too, right? Going yeah. forward, how does that need to be taken into consideration? Absolutely. And that's also why now we really need to focus on witnesses and witness effectiveness training because your key witnesses are probably not okay right now. And they're probably not going to be okay in a few months when they're deposed, either traditionally or virtually. And they're not going to be okay in a few months when your trial is rescheduled, you know, just like the jurors. They're going to be fearful, uncertain, stressed out, even if the worst of COVID-19 is behind us and things are looking up. Psychological effects are going to likely persist. Actually, a few weeks ago was The Lancet that published a review of studies examining the psychological effects of quarantine. And you see that that leads to major depressive disorder symptoms, PTSD symptoms, really significant mental health effects that persist in about 25%, one out of four individuals who have been subjected to quarantine for up to three years. So people are still experiencing these symptoms for three three years later. Um, that's a pretty big deal. And, and most of the individuals in those studies had only been quarantined for a couple of weeks, as opposed to these few months like us. So you got a witness who's already stressed out, they're uncertain, and then you couple that with the stress of testifying. 
even if your witness presents to you as totally calm and collected, I can assure you that they're not. Even if that's a corporate rep or some other high level employee, those types of individuals, you know, really respect counsel and they don't want to reveal their weaknesses. But those weaknesses exist and they're likely to come out at death and trial. So really more than ever during this time, you need to be taking team approaches to working with witnesses, the litigation psychologist handling the psychological issues, and you need the attorneys handling the legal issues. And it, it, it's important, though, that this all occur together as a team. Yeah, and one of the things we've noticed, too, is that we've had to alter our approach to things now with social distancing and all other aspects. We've actually gone out to online witness training. You know, there's platforms out there, whether it be Zoom or WebEx or any of the other ones that we're actually able to get on and interface with witnesses. We share documents with witnesses and do much more than we can, you know, just do as much as we can as if we were in person. And we found this to be actually highly effective and it's definitely something that because you can't be there in person it doesn't mean that you can't actually move forward with witness training and, and can't move forward with making sure that witnesses are prepared for deposition absolutely and that's something you want to jump on now so laurie we're almost out of time but one thing i did want to address just generally because we could do a whole other podcast on it and i touched upon it a little bit at the beginning is the prospect and the value of online mockery research during this time so what are your thoughts about online research. I know that a lot of people are actually going to this path versus actually in-person research. We could, yeah, like you said, we could spend a whole other podcast talking about this. You know, the value of online, online mock juror research depends on a whole bunch of factors. Too many to discuss right now. What I will say is that online mock juror research can be valuable um, and a valid means of addressing your research questions about a specific case. That's going to depend on what your research questions are. It can be great for assessing mock jurors' reactions to one of your key witnesses or corporate reps. If you want to assess jurors' reactions to key case issues and potential themes at the individual level, I would also say that if designed appropriately, online research can provide you with valid and reliable data. Now, the value of the data and the results that you get from online research is going to depend on the methods that your provider uses. In terms of online deliberations, that's a more challenging issue because you and I both know that social influence just does not operate the same online or in a chat room uh, than when you're actually in a deliberation room face-to-face. So I said, I would say, you know, online research for sure can be valuable in answering some questions. Uh, You want to make sure to talk to your provider about what the limitations are. And if they say that there are no limitations, you need to find a different provider. (laughs) Yeah, and I think to your point, Laurie, is that we've been a little bit on the fence about whether or not doing online deliberations or any sort of online focus group has value because it does create a different social dynamic that wouldn't necessarily exist in a room with other individuals. But as it is right now, it probably would provide useful information as long as you had the caveat of knowing that these individuals aren't in the room and social influence isn't operating and exerting its force on one another And I think right now it's a little early, though, to tell whether or not either of these in-person versus online is superior. But I think it's definitely something to look into as we move forward, because right now we're in a completely different world and we're going to have to approach things differently than we did before. Yeah, I agree with that. Well, Lori, I appreciate you taking the time out to chat with me about COVID-19 and how it has influenced your decision making. I know you and I have a a few more podcasts in the works, so we'll be back on shortly to chat more about other topics as it relates to jury decision-making. 
But if people want to reach out to you, if they want to talk to you more about whether it be terror management theory or your thoughts and opinions on any of the things we touched on today, how would they get a hold of you? Can, uh, anyone can contact me at lsicafuse at courtroomsciences.com. That's L-S-I-C-A-F-U-S-E at courtroomsciences.com. And you know what? We have a lot more to talk about in terms of jurors' responses to the COVID-19 crisis. In our future podcasts are going to be more focused on what attorneys need to do when jurors are back in court, what kind of questions they need to be asking, voir dire tips, and that kind of thing. So stay tuned. All right. Well, that sounds good. I appreciate you taking the time out, Lori, and I'll look forward to our conversations in the near future. Absolutely. Take care. You've been listening to the Litigation Psychology Podcast, presented by CSI. For more information, visit courtroomsciences.com.